0: some skills are essential for solving real-life data science problems but you will never learn them from coding tutorials academic papers or conferences here at naked data science we demystify these skills and give you practical tools and tips to advance your career and if you like our podcast you will like our free insider's guides We have compiled some of our best materials into a few short PDFs that give you practical techniques you can do today. Things like fixing projects that are not going well, receiving the recognition you deserve, and building intuitions on different types of models and machine learning methods. We are also giving away new materials and trainings every week. So open your browser and go to nds.show and download them for free today. That is nds.show. All right, let's get into this episode. There were cognitive biases in the data science work you did, and there will be more cognitive biases in all the future work you will ever do. They are just part of being human. But if you don't pay attention to how these cognitive biases affect your work, you can easily waste weeks, if not months, chasing after the wrong things. In this episode, we will talk about some common biases that affect the data science work, and how you can deal with them. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Naked Data Science. This is How, And I'm Nima. What are we going to talk about this time, Nima?
1: This episode, we want to talk about cognitive biases, basically systematic irrationalities in our thinking, and how they can affect the team's work doing data science.
0: Yeah. I think this is a very interesting topic because it doesn't only affect individuals. Cognitive biases has this tendency to spread between the different team members, and sooner than you know, if you don't pay attention, everybody starts thinking in that way without knowing about it until further down the line, it turns out that, oh, well, some of us could have pointed that out, but apparently nobody has.
1: It's interesting that they've been studied since at least 1970s. For me, and I think for a lot of people, they came more to the surface when Kahneman got his Nobel Prize and then after Thinking Fast and Slow was published, there was kind of a boom around cognitive biases and more recognition for them affecting different types of decision-making in organizations. There are definitely two camps uh, around cognitive biases or two strong positions. One that classifies them as irrationalities and kind of promotes avoiding them in making decisions, detecting them, and maybe nudging towards correcting them. And interestingly, there's also another camp which focuses on what can be useful in understanding and knowing more about the processes that generate these cognitive biases. So I hope today we can touch upon both of these ways of thinking about them and some practical implications they have in doing data science teamwork.
0: I think the practical part is very important. I remember this weird meeting. Let's call it an interesting meeting I, I once had. You know, we are going into a meeting talking about a uh, quite important and sensitive topic. And the person that is chairing the meeting, he said, okay, let's list all the possible cognitive biases we think we are going to make in this session because this topic is super important and we want to make sure that there is no bias. Okay, so everybody start brainstorming and then sooner than we know, we have like 20 cognitive biases and this is the point where everybody start getting a little bit bored. And then the chairperson say, okay, now this is a list. Let's all keep this list in mind and try to avoid them as quick as possible. And then very quickly, it become very obvious that the group got divided into two. Part of the group totally ignored what was written and just have the conversation as they normally do. The other group started labelling a lot of things as cognitive biases. And sooner than you know, you feel that the, the meeting is going at probably 10% of its normal speed. And by the end of two hours, we achieve very little. And then we run that meeting a different time and without doing all these things. And it ran much better. I think the practical side is quite important because cognitive biases, it's very much in human nature, right? That's why there's a lot of study into it. That's why anyone you talk to and then you share some thoughts about cognitive biases with them, they tend to be able to grasp it quite quickly. Now, people can relate to those things very quickly because it happens to everybody. But because it happens to everybody and it does Happen quite frequently, there's also a dangerous track for you to think, okay, let's just try to catch all of them and try to avoid all of them. It's going to take forever and you're not going to make any decisions or get any proper reasoning done anytime soon.
1: Definitely aiming to correct them is a difficult task itself because, in the end, we're using our brains which have these built in biases and trying to be conscious of not making the same mistakes or not having the same kind of biases in our decision-making. And I think it might be related to what makes these biases very Interesting and intriguing in the first place. I remember for me, it was always this sudden realization that I totally didn't think I was doing this thing. And then I realized based on my output or based on my thinking that it exists, that these biases exist and they're out there. So, this kind of opening up your vision to a cognitive blind spot, I think, is what is really striking and what makes them very attractive in the first place. The most common example I can think about, which is also related to the notion of biases in the statistics it is simple example that a large majority like 70 to 80 percent of people think that they are better than average drivers so statistically that cannot be correct half of the people can be uh, higher than median but we all have this self-confidence bias generally the population has this built-in and that's what causes that kind of output Maybe the most shocking example of having a cognitive blind spot is this gorilla in the room video exercise that I think most of people have already seen. People are throwing balls around and if you give them a task to count how many passes are sent around, they might even miss a huge gorilla that comes in the middle of the room dancing and leaves the picture. This element of shock and sudden realization, I think, is one of the factors that make these biases interesting and intriguing. And of course, dealing with them with the same tools that cause these biases is also a very tricky task and definitely not trivial to follow.
0: So what are some of the cognitive biases that we commonly see in leading data science projects and teams? Maybe we can talk about that and also just share how we deal with it.
1: I think the list is definitely very long. And most of the cognitive biases that are identified, they all also affect data science work and decision making to some extent. But we can still give a couple of examples, maybe one from each one of us that we see more often being out there. I think the most common example that immediately people think about when talking about data science work is the confirmation bias. It's been discussed many times that when you have a strong hypothesis and you want to prove it, it's natural that you see more evidence that can prove your hypothesis. That's kind of an easy one to identify. At least you can be more aware of it if you're conscious about it. For instance, by being aware of looking for the opposite kind of evidence or putting different hats on, imagining a different world where your hypothesis is not true and whether you would see similar effects or not. One cognitive bias that... I tend to be a victim of myself a lot of the times and I see very commonly in my team's work as well. I hope I'm getting it right, but I think it's the availability bias. I can describe the situation. It's basically that you've been working most of your projects in the same system. You've been coding in R with some set of libraries or you've been doing all your work in scikit-learn and Python with a set of libraries and this has been working well for the problems you're facing. And now you're facing a new problem. The first tendency is to keep doing it in the tools that you're familiar with. And of course, logically, there's a lot of reason to do this. And this could be as well the optimal solution. But the problem comes when this tool is really far from optimal for the problem you're solving. I remember times when I spent even one or two days trying to solve a new problem in the same tool that I was using until finally giving up that, you know, it would be much easier if I switch to another two. These are moments where you can really go for a long time trying to convince yourself that you're doing the right thing and also maybe, depending on your personality, resisting making a big change. But I think this is definitely one of the most common biases I've seen in day-to-day data science work. And this doesn't need to be necessarily one person sitting behind a laptop. This can also happen for a team working in an established ecosystem of tools. Especially in bigger organization, it suddenly becomes apparent that if you could just make a small switch to using a new tool or a tool that is not traditionally used for this purpose, we could save sometimes weeks or months of time working on a project by removing the hurdles. Of course, I talked about the tools, but the same way of thinking applies to the data sources that you're using it's very likely that you have your favorite well-known set of data sources that you typically go to for answering questions for instance in your organization maybe there are three different ways that you can get an idea about what kind of products are more popular based on the number of views, based on the number of purchases or other signals that are related to this. And it's easy to get stuck with one of these sources because you know it's better, you know the structure of the data better and you know how the data is recorded. But there easily can come many times when it's much better to switch to a completely different source for getting that kind of information. To me, again, this is one of the most common cases where stepping out from your tendencies can be very helpful and much more effective in solving the problem.
0: Yeah, I think you mentioned two examples at the individual and daily work level. And there are two I also observe quite commonly at projects and teams level. One of them is pro-innovation bias. I think everyone can relate to this. uh, If you work in the field of data science, machine learning, and AI, which is the tendency to have an extremely positive attitude or preference towards an innovation or an innovation's usefulness throughout the society, no matter where it came from. And this leads to a situation that if a new innovative solution works somewhere, then you make the assumption that this will work in these three other places as well without thinking about the potential limitation. When it comes to projects and planning a project or designing a solution, this can be quite devastating for data science projects and teams because you could very easily sit in a situation where you have an expert who very strongly claims that, okay, this is the right way to go because this is useful and this has been shown if you don't ask further questions on, okay, if this is something new and we are trying out, it's fine, but where has it been shown to work before and what are the limitations? And these are the questions you need to ask because without asking these questions, you will very likely fall into this pro-innovation bias. And I have fallen into this bias a couple of times. The other thing is the bias towards sunk cost. So it's quite common in a project that we start with one specific direction. And then as time goes by, the direction we are going is not making the progress as we expected to see. But then because we have invested both as an individual and as a team so much time already into that direction, then there's a natural tendency to say, okay, so we are not making progress as fast as we think, but look, we are now knowing so much about this technology or this approach or this method, if we, right now we need to drop this and start looking into a whole different direction, then you know we need to start all over again. But then I think sometimes that is necessary. I think sometimes at a certain point, if things are not working, you need to get to a point where you can say, okay, now we have tried enough. Imagine that if we haven't invested this much time into this solution, how will we feel about changing to a different direction right now? That helps you to overcome that sunk cost bias and a lot of times can really help you open up a new direction.
1: Yeah, I think the sankas is one of the most difficult ones from my personal experience as well. Logically, at any moment, you should only think about the amount of effort, the amount of resources that you will put from this moment on in and what kind of return on this investment will you receive as a response. But... There is something very deep about sunk cost fallacies, I think, that affects, like you correctly mentioned, a lot of times even how very big organizations make decisions. Of course, part of it is probably related somewhere to our egos. At some point, we made a strong argument for choosing one direction over the other. And there is this tendency to defend this position and to prove that this position is right and you can also imagine having conviction in the work that you're doing is very useful for dealing with hurdles you don't want to abandon a direction with the first hurdle that you face with the first challenge that is standing in your way but i don't know if there is a very easy solution to deal with the sound cause fallacy maybe just being aware of it and bringing it to your culture and to your conversation could be very helpful but deep down i feel this is the root of many evils in bad decisions in organizations. The fact that you have to prove a position was right. Maybe the root is that a lot of times accepting and dealing with some costs necessitates accepting some sort of failure. Of course, if you want to look at it as failure. Imagine your company started a huge project with a timeline of two or three years. What if after one and a half years you find out this is not a good direction to go? No matter how you think about it logically, I think in practice from a social perspective, even sometimes directly from an economic perspective, if your company has public investors, it might be a tragedy to come forward and say, we made the wrong choice and we were moving in the wrong direction. Now the optimal decision is to stop it and to change directions.
0: You are putting your finger on something that is quite sensitive there, especially when there is a big investment. Then even if everyone that is involved even if they rationally can think in terms of sunk cause, can only look forward it's still very difficult because then it just means that we need to accept that we made a mistake the path we have taken is not the best possible path that we could have taken now in my experience uh, seeing different kind of projects big and small going through this challenge i feel that there needs to be at least three conditions present in order for someone to get out of such a situation if the effect is quite strong. The first condition is that you need to get to a point where the important people that are involved in the past that get to here, they need to be able to start taking themselves out of the conversation to say, okay, just looking at the situation, Just looking at the decision that were made and looking at what has changed in terms of information, in terms of external conditions, in terms of the organization itself. Really just look at this from a quite factual perspective, as factual as possible. So this is the first condition. All the important people involved need to be able to think that way and talk that way, at least temporarily. So one way to achieve that is to create some kind of meeting where you create a safe space and then very carefully direct the meeting in a way that is focusing on the facts and make it safe for everyone to not think of themselves personally in that discussion. So that needs to happen. Not easy. Second condition that needs to happen is that there need to be an alternative path forward that looks a lot brighter than continuing on the current path. So from a company and organization perspective, this usually evolve in coming out with either a new strategy or even just a story you tell internally. When I say story, I mean a convincing narrative about where we are right now, what is the future we want to get to, and how we get there. Because unless you can find that out, The future is set on the current direction. So that story needs to be present. And that usually requires you to go one abstraction, at least one abstraction level higher and look at the bigger picture and then start finding this alternative direction that it can go to. Once you have that, you also need to be able to tell that story well to people, get into people's head. And and this usually is not, you have one chair with a person and that goes in, you plant a seed in the first one. But then over time, usually if it's a big project that you have been running for two years, then over the three months to five months, then you need to be telling this story until it really got into people's head, until they start believing that story as well. Again, not easy. The third condition is that once those are in place, in theory, you have the Russian side of the things and you have a bright future, a story that people can resonate. If you think your job is done at that point, you'll be very wrong because you still need to consider the emotional side of the people. Going back to the first condition, even when people can temporarily disassociate themselves in discussion about, you know, what is the best way to move forward afterwards, they still need to be able to tell a story consciously or subconsciously to themselves that it's okay that now we ignore everything we have done and take on a completely new direction. In China, our saying is that you need to give a ladder for the person to go down from that position, right? You need to give them something that, okay, they found themselves in this situation, they invest a lot into certain work and it's not going as planned. It could have been the best decision when we first start looking into, okay, how do we approach this? But it turns out, given all the new things that we discover, given the change in market condition and also the business itself, it's no longer the best way forward. What does that mean for them? The worst thing you can do is to ignore that and say, okay, nothing happened. Let's just move forward. It's very hard to convince people that. So you need to have some kind of setup, some kind of story to say to people, to explain, to help uh, people understand in their head, to create a personal story for themselves about why the things they have done is not all lost, why everything they have done was still valuable, and that can become an asset for them moving forward. So in order to do this, you need to understand the people. You need to understand their motive, especially as a person who leads a data science project or teams and maybe part of this bigger project that had a lot of investment. You need to go back to the history and you start pointing out those shiny moments, those things that you learn, those things that you have done together. And that helps people to create a different set of meaning from this change of direction. In my experience, if it's a big project, then these three things need to present in order for that change to happen. Otherwise, you always end up with some kind of change that is very abrupt, that nobody's happy about, that people feel really strange, and then uh, maybe still have a bitter taste in their mouth after six months or a year.
1: I think these three points that you mentioned are definitely necessary, but maybe there's a point zero in a way so something before you even start a project, that is related to acknowledging uncertainty. Typically, a sunk cost situation doesn't happen just because somebody was very stubborn about going in one direction, or there was no discussion about the potential of failure before going toward the direction. But I believe gradually we might start underestimating the uncertainty that exists in reaching that output so for instance if you want to sell this to others to outsiders or insiders in your company i realize that this really happens gradually as the conversation goes that one side starts getting more and more confident about the success of this direction about the success of the proposed solution and downplaying more and more the possibilities for failure And I think that is one of the main reasons why dealing with sunk costs become more difficult than necessary, because somehow we ended up really underestimating the uncertainty in reaching a success, somehow even probably masking many potential reasons for failure or trying to forget or ignore many potential reasons for failure and that can be really harmful once your project moves forward and as you go towards the end another factor which could potentially be helpful in dealing with sunk is what we also advocate and talk about a lot during this podcast and that's moving in smaller iterations and that also means potentially investing in the smaller iterations or at least investing incrementally so that you put more and more resources into something the more evidence you get about something succeeding i can understand that this way of looking at things might not work for moonshot or loonshot projects but in many other situations as long as you can gather more information by digging a bit more in the direction this could be a helpful strategy in avoiding to admit a very big sunk cost in a much later stage in the project
0: I think chances are if you are listening to this podcast and uh, especially this is not your first episode, you are the type of leader that at least care about solving a problem. Then it's very important that you assume the responsibility to talk about these uncertainties, to keep an eye on how these uncertainties over time and really explicitly mention them maybe even a little bit more often than you would naturally do. Why I mentioned this, if you care about problem solving and if you lead data science projects and teams, you probably can see uncertainties a little bit better. You can understand them. you can keep them in your mind a little bit better than the average person. And then it's very difficult, actually, to understand uncertainty, to think about the world, especially think about your work in terms of uncertainty. And therefore, if you can do this, it's very important that you share this with other people and not just hide it to yourself. I had projects where I really keep this to myself. And at the end, of course, I can play the guy who tells everybody, ah, I told you so. But at the end, we wasted a lot more time than we should. And we didn't get to the point that we could have got to if I were a little bit more mindful and more frequently share my thoughts, or my observation around the uncertainty and also how things has developed through time. That was one of the most important lessons I learned in the past few years, actually.
1: I'm sure I've also made that mistake, and that's a really good lesson to share, I, I believe.
0: Although, of course, if you understand uncertainty at a more fundamental level than other people, you also need to figure out a way to explain that to them that they can understand, right? And then, again, that's your job as somebody who can see it. But then whenever you can do that, it's really helpful for the project and for all the adjacent teams that you work with, but especially for your own team.
1: That was definitely really good advice. So far, we talked about all the ways that cognitive biases can work against you and lead in suboptimal decisions. But I think it's worth mentioning also that there's another camp of thinking that focuses on what can be good about cognitive biases how can it be helpful to understand them and uh, utilize what is built in in us as some kind of potential heuristic in thinking so for instance i think malcolm gladwell's book blink uh, talks a lot about gut feelings and that moment of recognition where subconsciously you know something and how that can be the best answer to a problem one of the most common examples i see people use is that despite all this theory about decision making that's not how anybody chooses their life partner nobody makes really a list, a big list of pros and cons and all the possible outcomes and then in the end makes the ultimate rational decision. That's also an interesting view to have in mind. One of the most interesting discussions I've seen is coming from Gary Klein or Gerd Geigerenzer, where they are focusing on the value of heuristics. Even arguing that heuristics are not there just because we don't have enough resources to process information. Even noting that heuristics, which are typically simpler solutions, are not necessarily introducing a trade-off between accuracy and efficiency. For me, one of the most interesting examples that depicts this is different stock market investment strategies if you know anything about the stock markets and i think most data scientists at least have some high level understanding or have heard on some level about all the sophisticated techniques and methods that are there for automating investment or even in general for decision making about investment one of the most surprising results is that some form of stock market indexing which basically means you buy a lot of stocks either by investing your money equally or at random in different stocks or with very simple heuristics you can beat many sophisticated algorithms and stock market index can beat many successful hedge funds at least if you look into a long period of time and that's just one of the examples which shows you that in a very uncertain environment sometimes a simple heuristic is not just the most efficient but could also be one of the most effective solutions i think it's really worthwhile in that sense to understand the value of simple heuristics and not to underestimate the effect that they can have in solving problems
0: I think also uh, simple heuristics have this property that is usually quite easy, like super, super easy, super, super quick to come to a decision. What that also means is basically is that in any kind of decision-making uh, situation, you probably already have a baseline solution or a baseline approach. The benefit is that you can then measure how good that decision is. And then if that is not good enough for you, you can always spend the rest of the time to find a more sophisticated solution. So looking back to my early meeting experiences, instead of trying to call out every single cognitive biases, which are a lot of times really just quite good heuristics, maybe just focus on when people don't agree or people are not all convinced, that usually indicates to, hey, maybe using the simple heuristic, ignoring the cognitive biases in this case, maybe it's not good enough. So let's talk more about it. Let's be very conscious and try to get to a as unbiased decision or conclusion as possible.
1: Yeah, there's definitely some point there about appreciating the value of simplicity and not dismissing simple solutions just because they lack complexity. It has been shown many times that in a lot of very uncertain environments, simpler solutions are simply better than more complex solutions. Of course, we know about this, for instance, in terms of overfitting in machine learning that having too many parameters can end up in you overfitting what you've seen very well, but not necessarily giving you predictive power. And on the contrary, it has been shown recently that a lot of times, A model with two or three variables can outperform a model with hundreds of variables. These are very interesting and to some extent surprising results. And good to have in mind, first of all, the value of this simplicity in terms of producing output, in terms of dealing with uncertainty, but also in terms of transparency and explainability. And I can imagine maybe in the coming years, we're going to learn more and more about the efficacy of simpler solutions and understand better some of the heuristics that are built in in us through millions of years of evolution and why they can be very effective ways of dealing with problems in uncertain environments. And in the same way, of course, it has been shown a lot of times that our gut feelings can be very wrong. A lot of work on cognitive biases are pointing out to that, that are, if you call it the heuristic or the system one way of thinking, can make very bad first judgments about some problems. But then again, I'm sure all of us have also run into cases that immediately after seeing some data, you had a sense of, this thing doesn't make sense. I don't suggest that you just act based upon your gut feeling but i think it's really worth giving it some voice if you're dealing with a situation if you're looking at some outcome or some data and you feel something here doesn't make sense don't take it as granted and don't make a final decision but i think it would be a very good candidate for further investigation and for probably employing what you call your system too in trying to get an unbiased view of what does or does not make sense in that situation
0: I actually think there's a pretty good takeaway, like in the tradition of our show, that our audience can try out tomorrow in their daily work. Let me see if I, I have one for this episode. Okay. One of the things that you commonly see is that when people first learn or people again learn about confirmation biases, they got very excited and you know they see a confirmation bias, they call it out. I will actually say if in the next few days you see a confirmation bias in the project or the team that you work in, don't call it out. But then challenge yourself, see if you can help the person or your team to avoid that bias, to go towards a more unbiased direction without calling things up. And that will require you to tap into what is the rational side of the things, what is the vision, the story that I'm going to tell about the future, and also what is the emotional side, the personal side of the things I need to consider. If this is the first time you think in this way it's going to be a little bit overwhelming. So that's why I also mentioned don't call it out and just try to do it yourself. And even if you just manage to do two of those three things, you will learn a lot from that experience. So that's the end of this episode. Thank you very much for listening and see you next time. See you next time. Just one last thing before you go. If you are not a data scientist yet but want to become one, you should really attend our webinar. We will demystify the transition into data science. We'll show you the most effective way to build your skills. And we will advise you on the four possible options you can take to go from where you are to landing a data science job in as little as nine months. Find out more at nds.show webinar. That is nds.show webinar. All right. That's the end of this episode. Have a nice day.